The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Keep or Cut podcast, a proud member of the Pitcher List Podcast Network. I'm your host today, Pete Ball, joined as always by Chad Young. And Chad, this is it. This is our 50th episode. 5-0. That's, that's quite a milestone. And we've we've been doing this for, is it just under a year, just over a year? When was our first? I'm going to look up when our first episode posted. I think it was in February of last year. So we've been doing it for definitely over a year by now because we definitely didn't start this in the middle of March. That would have been crazy. Yeah, that probably would have been a little late, huh? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Everyone's um, like, we're waiting for keeper advice. And we're like, don't worry. We actually started in January. So our first episode was January. So it's taken us just over a year to get to 50 episodes. That's really because we were cut off during the off season. They cut us down to, to every other week. We would have hit 50 much earlier. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we would have been at 50 ages ago. And the lockout didn't help to right? loss of content. It made sense that we were just going every other week. But... Yeah. Chad, we have to start with that. The lockout is over. The lockout is over. It is very exciting. I'm like, I, I spent the first like couple hours after the lockout ended sort of like mildly happy because I felt like the, there were stuff the players gave up that I really wish they hadn't. Um, I think that those, that the lawsuits that they, or the lawsuit they settled, they shouldn't have. Um, and I, I think you could, I think you could see that by the fact that the executive committee voted unanimously against the CBA before the player reps basically said, now nah, we're taking this. And then I eventually came around to like, you know what? They they settled one of the law or they, they, they dropped one of the lawsuits, not both, which I think is good. Uh, and the fact that um, the players themselves so overwhelmingly supported this, like, who am I to question them if they're happy with this? And I do think if you look at the numbers, like they made real gains, like there is a very, very large chunk of revenue being shifted from the owners to the players, which needed to happen. And which I think a lot of people doubted would happen. And so like, this is great. I, I think uh, now I'm just excited that we're, that we're ready to go. Yeah, I think it was a it was one of the best possible outcomes, honestly, because the way it started, you'd think like these the owners aren't bunging at all, and the thoughts about like well maybe they don't care if they miss April games really started to creep in. 
So the fact that the players that we're not only going to get 162 games, right? Because life is short, man. I want baseball. Give me 162 games. But that also the players got such such huge gains is awesome. Uh, we had some signings already. I don't know if you were like me, but constantly refreshing MLB trade rumors and Twitter uh, right when 6 p.m. hits. But Carlos Rodon, a giant. It looks like Nelson Cruz is closing in on a deal with a National League club. We are recording on March. Why do I never know the date, Chad? March, March 12th. 12th. There we go. March 12th. <laughs> Uh, in the morning, so a lot could change between now and Monday when this episode will air. But any thoughts on the few signings that have rolled in? Yeah, I mean, I think the Rodon signing is is clearly the the marquee one to date, and I, it's a it's an interesting one. I've seen a lot of debate on Twitter of like, should this change how you feel? Should it move his ADP? I felt like his ADP was a little high before. Um. I had some real concerns about the the shoulder, you know, the fact that the White Sox didn't make him a qualifying offer. Like there was a lot of reason to to be down on him given his injury history and where he was at the end of the season, despite what a great season he had. The fact that the Giants gave him the contract they did though, I, I just I just saw a tweet where somebody was saying like they don't understand what's changed. And I I replied and basically said, for me, like his actual injury risk hasn't changed. Whatever's going on in his shoulder is still going on. The Giants are not capable of avoiding that. Like the Giants aren't special in their ability to stop players from getting hurt. However, the Giants' analysis of his injury risk is is clearly very different than mine. Like if you were if you were someone who a week ago or a couple days ago was just out on Carlos Rodon, and now you find out that the Giants are in on him, that should change your thinking. Like that is a huge data point. And the fact that they gave him an opt out, like if he, if he blows out his shoulder and misses most of this year and maybe isn't going to be healthy for next year. And he, you know, like they're going to pay him $44 million for nothing. If that happens, which tells me they don't think that's going to happen. So no, they didn't give him a, you know, six year, $150 million deal either. So they're not, this isn't like a, you know, everything's fine. He's going to be totally healthy. The, the future is bright kind of thing, but it's a lot better than what I thought, right? The only data point we had before was that the White Sox weren't willing to risk one year and 18 million. Now the, the Giants are basically w- willing to risk 44 million potentially for nothing, right? And if he's great, they're going to pay him one year for 22 and then he's going to walk. So I, I think that this, I think that that contract speaks very highly of what the Whites, or not the White Sox, what the Giants think is going on with his shoulder. And the Giants are smarter than me. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fair. It does remind me a little bit of the Verlander contract, right? Which we actually just found out. I'm pretty sure the second year of that is a club option. So maybe that's a little form of insurance for the Astros, but it's a similar mindset, right? It's a guy who there's all these questions about a lot of risk. And yet these teams, these smart organizations, particularly the Astros and the Giants, are willing to invest so much money in them. It is definitely a boost to the confidence. And Clayton Kershaw, back to the Dodgers, don't want to ignore that either. That made me feel pretty good. Nobody knows Kershaw better than the Dodgers. And even though they didn't extend him the qualifying offer, the the fact that they're still willing to be like, yeah, no, we'll give you another year, though. Oh, that makes me feel pretty good about Kershaw's value heading into 2022. At least he's not retiring, right? I just took him in TGFBI. And then the rumor started like, if he doesn't end up with the Rangers, it looks like Kershaw's going to retire. I don't know if you saw that rumor. I did. That scared me so much. Yeah. I think the interesting thing with the the Dodgers is they ended up giving him, like his contract, the, the, the qualifying offer was like 18 point something million. His contract is 17 million with incentives. And 
there is part of me that wonders if the conversation between the Dodgers and Kershaw back in like October, November, before all this stuff happened, before the qualifying offer was was due, it part of me wonders if their conversation wasn't something like, look, we want you back. We know you want to be back. We won't make the qualifying offer. You go decide what you want. And when you come back, we don't like we they my guess is by then they had already exchanged enough information on numbers to know that he was gonna end up around there and that not giving him the qualifying offer did two things. One, it gave him a little bit more freedom to search around, right? It was just a sort of like, look, if you decide you want to go, you should have the freedom to go kind of thing. And it also gave them um it gave the team and the player the flexibility to sign a deal with a bunch of incentives, which it sounds like what they did, where if he's, you know, good but not great, the, the Dodgers probably save a little bit of money versus the qualifying offer. And if he's actually great, if Kershaw pitches the way we've seen him in the past, then he probably makes more money than with the qualifying offer. And so I, part of me wonders if the non not making the qualifying offer there was much more about like, just a respectful negotiation than it was about not wanting the qualifying offer because they basically gave it to him. Sure. Yeah. I like that. I like that theory. I do think as the season progresses and the Dodgers obviously are likely to head to the playoffs and make a deep run, those rumors of Kershaw potentially retiring with this being a one-year deal and there already being rumors of him retiring, I expect those to pick up. So if I'm holding on to Kershaw and he has a, he's having a good year around like the all-star break in my long-term leagues, I might be trying to cash out there but we can have that conversation in a few months. So Chad, today we want to refocus our attention to Ot New. We had the keep or cut listener Ot New auction a few weeks ago. It was awesome. We actually did it during the Super Bowl. And we talked about it quite a few times since then, but we haven't broken it down for an entire episode. And that's going to be our focus for today. So some background for folks. First of all, the guys that participated, thank you so much for joining. I look forward to competing with you guys. If we go by the surplus calculator, which Chad's going to explain in just a minute, you're all going to kick my butt. Um, but I'm going to defy the projections this year, Chad, so don't worry about that. But it is a four-by-four four new Roto format. Um, I'm going to let Chad sort of break all of this stuff down for our listeners, particularly if you're new to new. But Chad, can you tell us a little bit about two things here? Four-by-four, four, first of all, and then the surplus calculator, which we're going to be referencing quite a bit. Yeah, well, and for those for those listeners out there who don't play new, um, well, first of all, you, you should, so go fix that. But if you don't play new and you're like, oh... I'm not going to listen to this. We are going to go through, like I'm looking at my notes here and like, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about Dansby Swanson. We're going to talk about Jorge Soler. We're going to talk about Miguel Sano. We're going to talk about Frankie Montas. Like we got some, we got some big names to discuss today. So stick with us because you'll get some good player analysis in here, but four by four. So four by four auto new is actually, it's the original auto new format. Um, so, you know, for those who who know me or have been listening for a while, uh, Auto New grew out of something that myself and a couple of my friends from high school built because we were looking for a league like this years ago. And when we first started, it's actually a little bit untrue to say it was the original format because the original format was slightly different. Uh, we did four by four, so four by four today is runs, home runs, on base percentage, and slugging for bats, strikeouts, ERA, WHIP, and home runs per nine for pitching. So if you think about it, it is a it is a very saber friendly roto uh, experience, right? So 
if you look at the stuff for batters, like the ability to get a base, the ability to hit for power, coming around to score runs are, are sort of the things that, that are most important for bats. For pitchers, you know, strikeouts, home run suppression, avoiding walks and hits through whip, and then of course ERA. Like it's not it's not quite to the the saber level of the Fangraphs points or the saber points leagues, but it's a nice balance there where I think it gives you some of the the strategic balance of a roto league, but with without, you know, at the time we were like, fantasy cares so much about stolen bases, and all the data is telling us stolen bases don't really matter that much. That like successful steals for you know matter but being caught stealing is bad and so a guy who steals 40 bases and gets caught 20 times is not actually helping their teams like why should we value that so the one change from back in the day the the first few years of auto new we did not use home run per nine as the pitching category the fourth pitching category was slugging percentage against um and and home run per nine is a little bit more I guess I would say analytics friendly than the slugging percentage against, right? Because like giving up a bunch of doubles is not the same as giving up a bunch of home runs. And obviously home runs hurt in slugging percentage against than more than doubles do, but you know, BAPIP can have a huge impact on slugging percentage allowed. It cannot have a huge impact on home runs per nine. Uh, so that change has been made, but yeah, that, that is the format. It is, it is my favorite auto new format. Maybe that's because it's the original one and I'm, I'm, you know, nostalgic for it or something, but it, it is my okay. favorite. Yeah. Um, and the surplus calculator. So uh, Justin Vibber, who has been playing auto new, if not from the beginning, then maybe from like the second year. I mean, he, he was, he's been around since as long as auto new has been available to the world. Um, you can find Justin on Twitter at Justin Vibber, V-I-B-B-E-R, V-I-B-B-E-R is the last name. Justin created this thing called the Surplus Calculator. He created it years ago basically for himself, and then he now has it available through Patreon, and it is an awesome, awesome tool. But basically what it does is it pulls in uh, every roster from your league. It pulls in uh, projections. You can either add your own projections or use the ones he has built in. Uh, for today, we'll use the ones he has built in, although I would suggest that you use your own as much as possible. Uh, we can talk about why that is later. Um, and then it basically evaluates which players on which teams have surplus. And surplus in this case is value above and beyond their paid, their salary, right? So, you know, if you've got a, if if your projections, the projections you're using say that Fernando Tatis Jr. is a $60 player and you're paying him $35. You have $25 of surplus on him. And so the surplus calculator is all sorts of great stuff. But one of the things that's really useful for, for what we're talking about today is, is a great like shorthand, for lack of a better term, for figuring out who the teams are that sort of look the best. And so one of the columns on the first tab of the surplus calculator is uh, total value and that is the total value of the players in the team so everyone has 400 in salary cap everyone spends whatever share of that they spend but just because you spend 400 doesn't mean your players are worth 400 and so if i look like i can look at that and see that like okay i spent 384 my team is worth 399 according to the surplus calculator it's not terrible that's that's okay but there are three teams that that stand out uh house of david and 
black belt in training are at $441 and $436 as total value respectively. And then fighting Chihuahuas is at $464. Uh, and so those are teams that, you know, basically what that's saying is for the money they spent, they got a lot more value. And those teams, if you were to ask the surplus calculator, the it will argue that those teams are sort of best positioned for the season. I think that but, makes sense. I kind of like the the arrangement in which that is, right? So the, the dollars are obviously correlated to the projection system. And so the more expensive the player, as everybody knows, the better or the higher their projections are hold it all up and see how much like true value i guess would be the way to put it that that the auction or the surplus calculator seems to think your team has i do like that you said Chad, you should use your own projection system and that's kind of why i'm gonna when, when we do eventually talk about my team kind of defend it um and and just as an example you said earlier that it said i overpaid for was it Catel Marte, Chad? Yeah, I mean, if we look at if we look at your team, we can we can pull up your team now. Let's we might as well just start there. The, the value on your team for the three hundred eighty nine dollars you spent, according to the surplus calculator, is two hundred eighty three dollars, uh, which is which doesn't sound great. Um, but to your point, like that's just the projections, and this is like I don't even think these are the projections Justin uses for his auctions. They're just like a, a baseline using Fangraphs depth charts projections, creating values for players. And so, yeah, if I look at your team, like the six players who have the most sort of negative surplus, so negative surplus in this case means you have paid them more than they're worth. The six players you've done that for, according to the surplus calculator, um, are Manny Machado, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Eloy Jimenez, Cattell Marte, and Corey Seager, there are, are five of those six. And those guys are all like, they're all stars, right? And so I don't like, I'm looking at like, it's saying you overpaid for Vlad by $8 by paying him 58 instead of 50. And like, I have no problem with Vlad at 58. The sixth guy that you overpaid by eight plus dollars is Tanner Houck. And you paid him $11 on a $3 projection. But like, leaving aside your. No. deep and abiding love for Tanner Hawk. Uh, you're not paying him for his projection. You're paying him for his upside, right? Another guy on your team, like you paid $6 to Alec Thomas and his projection is $0. I don't think Alec Thomas is a $0 player. I think he's a triple A guy who we don't know a lot about, who has a lot of risk and therefore the projections are going to be cautious on him. But like, I think that's a totally fine purchase. Um it's also, be, you know, the, the values in this, in the, in any projection are really only looking at this season. And so, you know, yes, a guy like that's using another name for your team, Jared Kelnick, you paid $10. His value is $4 according to the projections. Yeah. You're going to have him for $12 instead of $10 next year. But the, the upside on Kelnick is that he's a $25 player. Right. And so the fact that you're overpaying, quote unquote, overpaying a little bit this year, again, not really a concern. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that was kind of my mindset too. Is it sounds like obviously this calculator is basing itself on 2022 projections. But when we're talking about new, we're talking about long term and finding values and everything like that. I mean, with that said, I, I want to compete this year and I still think I will. It, this is my first time doing four by four. And I think honestly, the category that, snuck up on me the most I guess would be home runs per nine I based my rotation around like I'm just going to find values and 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 try to capitalize from there kind of ignoring the fact that you know both of my starting pitchers Giolito and Flaherty both of my like key guys the guys I paid up for are kind of home run prone so I could see that being an issue but I mean summarizing my team quickly because I definitely don't want it to be the focus it's definitely not the most uh I guess significant when looking at the surplus calculator 
I think the key in defying those projections is finding values in the players that I paid cheaply for. And so I referenced this last time uh, we, we chatted when we did our starting pitcher preview and we talked about values and there's a range of players that really begins around like ADP 190 and ends around like 250. And I tried to stack up on those names. And so to give those names again, Tanner Houck, Ian Anderson, who actually might be a little bit earlier, uh, but Hyunjin Ryu, Tony Gonsolin, Tristan McKenzie, Josiah Gray, Tariq Skubal, Bailey Ober, Mike Soroka, Dakota Hudson. Not that I'm really holding out that much hope for Hudson there at the end, but finding those values late to make up for the dollars that I spent aggressively on at the top. I don't think I win completely stars and scrubs. That was definitely not my approach. But if I can capitalize on those late picks, I feel pretty good about it. The one thing I mentioned to you, Chad, before we started talking today was my Dalton Varsho $11 purchase. And I really didn't want to miss out on catchers because, I mean, that's kind of been a theme of our conversations this year. Sure. But ugh, I, I I hate that I spent $11 on, on Dalton Varsho in, in this format where stolen bases don't matter. Yeah, stolen bases don't matter, and you know one of the one of the big things that pushes Varsho up draft boards is that there's a good chance he's basically an everyday outfielder who occasionally catches. In your standard one catcher league, or two catcher league for that matter, like that's super valuable because it is really hard to maximize games played at the catcher position. However, in auto new. In not in the so this isn't true in auto new weekly head to head leagues, but in auto new season long leagues, any any of the roto or points leagues that are season long, you have two catcher spots in your lineup. You only have one catcher's worth of games, right? You only get 162 games to fill, but you can have two catchers and play matchups with them and pretty easily get to that 162 games by just you know using them both on the same day sometimes. And so that that upside that Varsho has of like, oh, you can just lock him into your slot and he's there every day isn't quite as high as it would be in uh in another format yeah that totally makes sense um yeah it was a mistake but at least it was just an 11 dollar mistake right um so let's let's start looking at the other teams chad and since we did mine i think it's fair to do yours before we do those top three teams on the surplus calculator um you had a pretty good draft. It sounded like based on the surplus calculator, you weren't too excited about it. I shouldn't say draft. You had a pretty good auction. What are your initial thoughts on your team and, and what areas do you think we need to, you need to address as the season goes on? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one, one of the things that's interesting about this is I think one of the big, one of the most telling things about what the, what the surplus calculator tells you after an auction is who uses the values in the surplus calculator or who uses values similar to the values in the surplus calculator um, when Justin first started creating values, he based a lot of his work on work that I had done. He has far surpassed me at this point, but we have a very similar method for creating values. And, and even if when we use different projections, we end up thinking similarly. And because of that, Surplus Calculator tends to like my teams because even though I'm not using the exact same values, they're close enough. Um, but looking at my team, I mean, I think I, I got uh, people who listen to the show or who read my work like... This is very clearly my team. <laughs> I have Josh Bell. I have Willie Adamas. I have JD Davis. I have Dom Smith. I have Jeff McNeil, Trevor Larnock, Stephen Kwan, George Valera. Like this is this is my team through and through. Which um, I always like that. Like I I like when I can go get my guys. And one of the things I love about auctions is you know my pitching staff. Like 
I am higher than most on Aaron Nola, Chris Sale, Frankie Montas, and Blake Snell. We'll talk about these guys in a little bit, but like I'm higher than most on all four of those guys. It would be very, very hard to build a rotation with those four guys in a draft. In an auction, I went out and I got those guys. Um, what's a little weird about that is, again, people listen to the show know, like I don't usually go hard after starting pitching. Like I like to live a little bit of a cheaper spot. For me, having four pitchers at twenty to twenty-seven dollars um, is is a lot. <laughs> now, I happen to think that Nola is a thirty-plus dollar pitcher. I think Sale is is close to thirty. I think Montas is close to thirty, and I think Snell is more like a twenty-five dollar pitcher. So I think I got good deals on all those guys. So I'm fine with this, but it is not my typical strategy. Um, my other my other four by four league that I'm in the original auto new league, league one going into the auction. I only have two pitchers at $10 or more. That's $23 Kevin Gaussman and a $10 Pablo Lopez last year. I, I didn't have a single double digit starting pitcher on that team. So spending 80, almost a hundred bucks on four pitchers is, is not typical for me. Um, but I got my guys and I'm good with that. Um, I think the guy I want to talk about a little bit. So like I, I wrote up Aaron Nola at Pitcher List. You can go find that article. We've talked a little bit about Blake Snell here because he had that awesome run sort of in the second half before he got hurt where he really looked like himself again. The guy I really want to talk about is Frankie Montas. And I, I think I, – I feel like I'm going to get uh, – I'm pushing too hard. Maybe this is a bold prediction or a hot take. I think he has legitimate fantasy ace upside. Like, I think Montas finishing in the top 12 of starting pitchers is not a crazy thing to see happening. Um, well, I mean, I just count, not counter, I guess, but you could make the case that in 2021, he was an ace. Like, he's done it. 187 innings pitched, over 200 strikeouts. The whip was under 1.2. He made 32 starts with an ERA of 3.37. I mean, maybe if you're saying he's got like Garrett Cole, Corbin Burns level, like second round pick ace upside then that definitely a bold take, but he was awesome last year. And I don't understand how he's going. I, I guess as late as I, I think it's a hesitancy to believe in it. And maybe it's worry about the wins in Oakland because they're blowing it up. I don't know, but I'm glad you brought him up. Cause I'm, I'm with you. I really like Montas this year. Yeah. And, and looking at his year last year, you know, he had, we, this is, we talked about this with Giolito last week where he had like, Oh, if you just ignore the bad start, he was great. And, and, we we said at the time, like, you can't just ignore the bad start, right? But I'm going to do that again. Sorry. <laughs> uh, he had a real rough start in his his very first start of the season. He went two and two-thirds innings. He gave up seven earned runs. He had three walks and four strikeouts. He gave up a home run in that two and two-thirds. Um, and by FIP, it was actually his second worst outing of the season, Three starts later, on April 21st, he went four innings, gave up six earned runs, gave up three home runs. That one, at least, he had four strikeouts and no walks in four innings, but gave up three home runs to Minnesota in just four innings pitched. Um, He was really, he just was really struggling in the early going. However, from May 1st on, he had a 3.08 FIP, a 2.94 ERA. He was striking out more than 10 batters per nine innings. His walks were under three per nine. Now, that is compared to an April in which 
uh, in which he was striking out just over nine batters per nine. His walks were actually not bad. They were still 2.55, but he had a 5.28 FIP, 6.20 whip. And the difference there, I think, has to do, and, and this, by the way, is going to be a little bit of a concern I have with him early in the season this year, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the difference seems to be having a feel for his splitter. And his splitter, like, that pitch is, that's his pitch, right? If you look at, like, the pitch values on uh, on fan graphs, he has by far the best results or be- best stats on his splitter versus his his other pitches. If you go over and look at his his numbers on on Savant, he has the best results off of the splitter. Like hitters have the hardest time squaring it up and putting it in play. However, in those early starts, he had more velocity on his on his splitter than he did later in the season. So his splitter in in April was at 87.7 miles per hour. The rest of the season, let's see if I can make, get this. The rest of the season, uh, it was down to 87.5, which doesn't seem like a lot. I will acknowledge it's not like a huge drop. But those two really bad starts, he was up over 88. He was at 88.4 and at 88 even in those two really bad starts. Um, and after that first start, he threw it, he threw his slider, or sorry, not a slider, his splitter 23% of the time in that first start, and then dropped down to 9%, 16%, and 13.2% over the next three starts. And it took him a while to get back to using it more. And, and my you know, the, the splitter is a pitch, like it's an off-speed pitch, right? You want separation between that and your fastball. Um, my guess, and this is this is just a guess, right, is that in April, he was a little slow on his fastball compared to the rest of the season. He was a little fast on his splitter compared to the rest of the season. I don't think he quite had a feel for that pitch when the season started. And, and it is a difficult pitch to just handle. Then once he got the feel for it, he was great. And if you look at going, going back to Savant, if you look in, in April on his splitter, he had a 237 X-Woba. Now, 237 X-Woba is really good, but splitters tend to have, like off-speed pitches tend to have good X-Wobas. In May, that was down to 174. In June, it was 126. In July, it was 112. In August, it bumped back up again to 252, but then in September, it was 161. Like, he... he struggled a bit that 237 is good but it looks bad compared to most of the rest of the season and so my sense is he struggled a little bit with that with the feel on that splitter early in the season and then put it back together and was just brilliant the rest of the way now we are about to get a shortened spring training and so i do have some concerns that he's going to open the season a little rough again um those concerns are not big enough that he won't like if he's the opening day starter for the for the a's which i don't think he will be but if he is he's going to be in my lineup on opening day. Like I'm not benching him because of this. What I am going to do is if he has a rough first start or second start, I'm not panicking. I'm not giving up. Like I I will look closely at that splitter and see if he's having similar issues, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. If with a a shortened spring training, he's still sort of getting that pitch in shape by the time the season starts. But once he has it in shape, this guy's an ace. Yeah, he he's volatile, and I think that's the case with really all splitter pitchers. You brought it up 
obviously, especially at the end, that it, it's a tough pitch to get a grip for. And I think a great case study of that was Masahiro Tanaka, right? Where when he had a feel for the splitter, he was unbelievable. And when he didn't have it and he had to rely on his other pitches and he wasn't getting as much movement, he got slammed. Um, and so that's what I kind of always worry about with splitter pitchers. I mean, Kevin Gosman's kind of finally defied it the last couple of years where he's really had a grip on that and he's, he's had it under control. Maybe Montas has made that similar gain and it'll take him less time this year to get it under control. You're right, though. I kind of view him in a similar way to Luis Castillo. And what I mean by that is at the beginning of the year, if, if these two players are struggling, I'm going to start buying. Um, Luis Castillo doesn't like the cold weather. Everybody knows that now. He had that brutal start last year. And then you look at his numbers in the second half and it was like, oh, okay, he's back. Same thing with Montas and other guys that throw splitters were like, it can turn on a dime. In weekly leagues, though, it's, it's scary, right? Because any given week, you know, he could get lit up because he doesn't have a feel for that pitch. It was just rare last year, right? Like you said, I mean, it was really just two starts that he, he struggled tremendously. Otherwise, he was fantastic. So I'm with you. If, if he starts the year struggling, guys like Montas, guys like Castillo, for two very different reasons, I'm going to start buying on. So, Chad, before we dive into the top three teams, I do want to take a quick break for our sponsor. But when we come back, let's start talking about those top three teams on the surplus calculator. We'll be right back. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show all right, so we were just talking about Chad's team there from the Keep or Cut Ot New League. Again, thank you to all of you who participated. We would love to do a complete breakdown of every single team. And I'm sure over the course of the season, Chad, we will be mentioning pretty much every single team. But there are three that really stood out. You mentioned them at the top of the show where, uh, according to the surplus calculator, they were projected to be pretty awesome. Um, and so we've talked about selfishly our own two teams let's start breaking down these and the right off the top um the first team that, that come well that comes in first according to the surplus calculator was house of david what were your thoughts in this squad i see that in the notes you're like not none of these are really steals but it looks like they just got bargain after bargain on a lot of players and it, it added up on the surplus calculator yeah i think that's right i mean I, I, this team so they're they're projected to come in actually third of those or oh, second or third backwards. Yeah. But regardless, um, that's right. I mean, I, I think like I look at this team and their biggest, so let's get this off the top, their biggest value according to the surplus calculator. And by the way, this is league 1372. We'll throw a link in the, the notes, but if anyone wants to follow along, you can follow along. Um, their biggest value is an $8 Marcelo Zuna, uh, who's valued at $17 by the surplus calculator. We'll have to talk about, you know, we, we were talking about this again with a guy like Bauer, but like this is clearly a case where off the field stuff has suppressed a player's value. 
Um, and so I'm take that with a grain of salt, right? That's, that's their biggest surplus piece. And it's, it's, there's extenuating circumstances for why that is. Um, if you look at their next sort of biggest values, it's three, call them risky pitchers. Um, Mike Clevenger and Luis Severino are two of them. Alex Wood is the third. Alex Wood's probably the least risky of those guys, but it's not like he's got a real clean injury history himself. So, um, and then, you know, the, the big thing for this team is if you look at their their worst values, quote unquote, right? We talked about those guys that you you overpaid for like by $8 for the surplus calculator for Vlad. Their worst values are like two bucks, right? So $51 for a $49 Garrett Cole. $2 for Zach Plesak and Adrian Hauser and Eric Haas, who all projected zero. But like nobody's nobody's questioning spending an extra couple bucks on Garrett Cole. Nobody's questioning taking a flyer on Hauser or Haas or someone like that. There's a few other guys that they were like $1 or $2 over on. Um, but nothing nothing crazy. Like they just, they just seem to make very reasonable smart buys like they paid reasonable prices consistently and that the result of that is that the surplus calculator likes this right and so maybe this team was even using the surplus calculator values and sort of stopping before they got too high above those or maybe they used just like like me they use different values but a similar process um but you know they're they're most expensive players like you know, a $28 Joey Gallo, a $46 Corbin Burns, $24 Fran Mil Reyes, $21 Teoscar Hernandez. None of those are guys that you're like, wow, that is a steal. But every single one of them is like, yeah, that's a totally reasonable price to be paying for that guy. Um, and then they, you know, you get a few like Nolan Arenado for $15 is a little bit of a steal. Um, so like th- there's a few, you know, th- there's nothing in here that stands out as like, wow, that value is just awesome. I'm super impressed uh, that they that they manage that, but there's nothing in here that stands out as like, nah, that was terrible. Why'd they do that? Yeah, sure. No, you wrote down that you wanted to talk about Dansby Swanson and so, sort of question shortstop there, and I'm with you. And I looked into it a little bit, and so I want to talk about him. But I'm curious your thoughts right off the top. What, what's going on with a ten dollar Dansby Swanson? How do you feel one way or another? Because I couldn't really tell by what you were saying there. Yeah, so <laughs> my I, I started off my initial notes in this team. So this team at, at middle infield in general, um, they've got Ozzy Albies, who great, nice pick. He'll be good for them. They've got a bunch of sort of interesting-ish second baseman, Vidal Bruyan, Joey Wendell, who I think is good depth, but not much else. Brad Miller, who's been very good when he's played, but who knows what his role is going to be. Cesar Hernandez, who this team could probably cut pretty soon. And then their two shortstops are Dansby Swanson for $10 and Eugenio Suarez for 13 Suarez has been down, but I actually like him as a bounce back, but I wouldn't want to be super reliant on him. Swanson was the guy who I was like, man, Dansby Swanson's not that good. This feels like an overpay. And then I started to look at his numbers and like, he obviously had a great season last year, right? And my, my sense of him being a, a, a overpay or a risky player is that like I just don't see him hitting 27 even 25 home runs again like that's just a it felt like an outlier season to me I don't think he's got that kind of power however I went in and dug a little deeper and like his home run per fly ball rate was a career high last year at 15.7 percent but it was at 15.6 percent in 2020 
Um, his fly ball rate was a career high at 40.3, but it's been creeping up for a couple years. And that's also the kind of thing that like, like a, a huge jump in home run per fly ball rate could be sign of just luck, fluky season, whatever. Fly ball rate creeping up is something a player could be doing. And then I dig into his stack cast numbers and, you know, it's like he had an 11.4% barrel rate in 2021, which is awesome and seems like, you know, I don't know that I believe he has the power to do that repeatedly. He had an 11.4% barrel rate in 2020. Um, His hard hit rate was a career high at 42.4%. The last three years, his X slugging is 476, 472, 456. So it's down in 2021 comparatively. But his actual slugging percentages are all lower than those numbers, 422, 464, 449. So like, I don't know, the more I look at this, like I started off thinking like, yeah, he just had his career year. He's never going to do that again. And the more I looked at it, I was like, well, maybe he can. Like maybe that, maybe he's just hitting more fly balls, hitting the ball with more authority. And if he can stick around that, you know, if he can stick around a 38 to 40% fly ball rate and a 15-ish percent home run per fly ball rate, maybe he can repeat this. And in fact, like he had a 297 BAPIP last year. I don't think he's the kind of guy who's going to regularly run like 350 BAPIPs like he did in 2020. But if you told me that he sort of maintained his power and put up like a 325, 330 BAPIP season and therefore his on base and batting average were, were solid, it doesn't seem crazy to me. It's It's not what I expect. It's not what I'm buying, but all of a sudden that $10 Dansby Swanson that I was sort of down on and like, eh, you're paying for peak performance. He's never going to do that again. Like, I don't know. I mean, if he, if he puts up another season like he did last year, this $10 is going to look real good. And I no longer feel confident that he can't do that or that he won't do that. No, that makes sense. And even that like 15.8, like the things we look for to see like what was fluky. And you mentioned the 15.8 home run to fly ball, right? It's above league average, but it's still not crazy, right? Like that that's not that bad. Yeah, it seemed high for him until I realized that it's basically what he did last year, you know, 2020 also. And then it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, now this is like, you know, 2020 was a shortened season and all, but that is now 917 plate appearances with a 15.7% home run per fly ball rate. And it had been, it had been going up before that, right? In, in his first full season in 2017, he was at 5.5%. Then he brought it up to 10.4%. Then he brought it up to 12.6%. So it's not like this is just overnight. He all of a sudden had one season of 23%. He went to an above average rate for two consecutive seasons after an ongoing trend upward. Right. So where I'm at with Swanson is I don't want to make too much of of what I'm about to say because I think he's fine. Like $10, I think that's fine. Even if he performs as an $8 player, it's not going to kill your team. In 5x5, five five, I definitely understand where he's going because, I mean, first of all, stolen bases are so precious. And so if he's going to be able to chip in 9 or 10 stolen bases, like that, that's sought after. I have a minor concern with Swanson where if we look at the timeline last year, on July 10th, Ronald Acuna tours ACL, right? So you fast forward a week and all of a sudden Dansby Swanson has is batting the top five of the lineup. He spent pretty much every single game between July 17th and August 28th, either batting second or fifth in the Atlanta lineup, which is stacked even without Ronald Acuna. During that time period, 167 plate appearances, 27 runs, nine homers, 36 RBI, three stolen bases, and he bat 307. His WRC plus was 138. 
his ranks in the National League during that time period, he was sixth in war, seventh in runs, 10th in home runs, 10th in home runs, Dansby Swanson. He was second in RBI during that time period. And he was tied for 12th in batting average. This was a, a he took full advantage of moving up in that lineup. Before that, I mean, he was hitting 243. He was not on any of those crazy paces. And his strikeout rate, for some reason, was way higher. So I, that obviously spot in lineup doesn't correlate with strikeout rate. But during that time frame where Acuna was out and he was batting the top fifth or, or top five of the lineup, he had a 15% K rate. Before that, it was 28. That's just, I guess, an outlier. But he clearly took advantage of a great spot in a lineup that was on fire, and he was on fire as well. With Ronald Acuna coming back, Marcelo Zuna presumably coming back, and, and roster resource currently doesn't obviously account for the fact that either Freeman or maybe Matt Olson or someone is going to come and play first base for them. If Swanson moves back into that bottom third of the lineup, I think looking at last year's stats is going to be very misleading because the bulk of those stats came from this time period where he seized an opportunity in the lineup that he's just not going to have again this year. Yeah, I think the the question with that is, did he did he improve something during that time frame that whether he's hitting first or fifth or eighth or ninth or whatever is still going to stick with him in terms of his ability? Um, because while order, you know, in your traditional five by five leagues where you hit in the lineup matters a lot for runs and RBIs in this four by four, it does matter for runs, but it should have very little impact on on base percentage, slugging percentage or home runs. Um, so for the most part, I'm not super worried about where he is in the lineup. Now, if, if there's concern that like hitting in that spot of the lineup actually allowed him to perform at a different level, that's that's a different conversation. I'm not super worried about that. I to me, I think he's uh I don't know. I'm 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 still not like he is still not a guy that I am I believe is gonna be like a top ten shortstop in fantasy or anything like that. But I was out on Swanson before I before I looked at this team and now I'm I think I'm in on him. I think he's the kind of guy that like I you know, if I can get him at ten bucks in a couple leagues, I I might go do that. Yeah. That's that's totally fair. And I I don't want to make it seem like I want to overblow position and lineup. Even in five by five, that rant was more directed at five by five, certainly not this this four by four format. But I, I, again, if if I miss out on all those amazing shortstops and I have to take Dansby Swanson, okay. Even though I, I'd rather just wait and take Anyel Cruz. It was just that was interesting to me. He took advantage of an opportunity, which is great. I just don't think that opportunity is gonna be there again. Um the next team on that list. Uh, Chris B, Chris B, you said embrace the chaos, Kershaw, Erod, Sixto, Voight. There is definitely a, quite a range of potential outcomes, but the surplus calculator, Chad, it likes this team. Tell me a little bit about the squad. Yeah. So this team, I mean, it, it is definitely like, I was looking at their lineup and like their first base situation is as of right now, I think their starter is probably Luke Voigt. It might be Frank Schwindel. Eventually, it might be Tristan Cassis. Uh, but, like, <laughs> there's a lot of risk there. At second base, um, you know, Jorge Polanco, who I, who I really like, by the way, uh, but has been very up and down, right? And I know there's a lot of people who are like, oh, man, is Polanco going to be able to repeat what he just did? Um, they went relatively cheap at shortstop with Brandon Crawford, who I who I like, and Jeremy Pena, who who knows what that what, what pain is going to be um at third base like 
I think they had some bad luck. I think they picked up Josh Young before the injury news because I think we drafted early enough. Um, but Donaldson and Longoria are basically his third base options. Um, the thing that 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 I think is happening with this team is they bought in on the risky players that the projections like, if that makes sense. So like you look at Voight and you're like, man, I don't know what the playing time situation is going to be. He hasn't really stayed healthy. He has a $16 projection. So a $10 value on him is, is pretty good. Frank Schwindel only has a few hundred plate appearances under his belt. Is he really, you know, a almost 30 year old breakout? Maybe, but the projection system likes him at a $9 price. So $4 works out well. Um, you know, Josh Donaldson with his age and everything still has an $18 value in the surplus calculator. So $16 price on him is pretty good. You know, similarly, a lot of the pitchers, like it just, he, he seemed to basically say, and we all have to do this, right? We have to take risks in fantasy. You can't just play it safe. If you play it safe, your team is, to be blunt, if you play it safe, your team's probably not going to be very good. It probably won't be very bad, but like you'll finish fifth or sixth or something like that in a 12-team league. And like, if I look at my, you know, we just finished TGFBI. If we look at my TGFBI team, like my rotation includes Severino and includes Clevenger. Um, I took a gamble late on Trevor Rosenthal getting a closing job. Like you're going to have to take risks like that somewhere. And it seems to me that what Chris did was take those risks on players that the projections buy. And I think that's sort of a smart way to do it, right? Because I'm, uh, I'm not smarter than the projection systems. There are individual cases, and we've talked about this before, like there are individual cases where the projection systems just aren't going to do as good a job as as a human taking an individual look at an individual player will. But across the board, across you know, a, a population of thousands of players that you have to pick from and, and hundreds that are going to be rostered, the projection systems are going to be smarter than you on average. And if that's the case, like making taking your risks where the projection system tells you it's a good risk is to me, I think a smart way to go about it. And so um, I do think this team has a very wide range of potential outcomes. Like again, looking at, at this lineup, if the Yankees trade for a first baseman, this team could be in real trouble at first base. Uh, if Jorge Polanco isn't great again, their middle infield could get real shaky real fast. And then in the outfield, like, you know, Mitch Haniger and Tyler O'Neill were great last year. Jorge Soler was great in the second half of last year. Um, Darren Ruff was, has looked really good. Schwarber's really probably the safest piece in their outfield. Um, although I do think the, the guy, and I made this note in, in my, my notes, like, I love, I love the Jorge Soler buy. Like, I think that was... I, I think he's going to have a really, really good season. And so like, if you go look at Jorge Soler um, in 2018 and 2019 versus 2020 and the first half of 2021 when he was with the Royals and he was, he was struggling quite a bit. Um, in 2020, his strikeout rate jumped. It went from being in you know the 26.8, 26.2 in 2018, 2019 to 34.5% in 2020. Uh, in the first half of 2021, he got that back in line, but his BAPIT plummeted. At the same time, he had a home run per fly ball rate in 2019 and 2020 of 28.1, 22.9%. 2020, 
And then it dropped to 13.3% with KC in the first half of that season. Um, and some of that is, you know, Park Kaufman's a terrible place for power. But, like, he was putting up that 28.1, 28, 22.9 before that in Kaufman. Like, this wasn't just, like, this wasn't a new park to him. Um, and then in the second half, uh, when he went to Atlanta, his home run per fly ball rate came back. His bat bit, which had been 229 in the first half with KC, went up to 278. Not, you know, nothing, nothing exorbitant there, but a big change from 229. And he brought his strikeout rate down to 18.6%. 18.6%, if he did that for a full season, would be easily, easily a career best. And his walk rate was 12.0%, which would also be a career best. So you had a guy who struggled through 2020 in the weird shortened season, whose those struggles carried over to the start of 2021. And then for the last two months of the season was the best version of himself that we've ever seen. Um, That doesn't mean that he's going to go back and just like, this is now who he is. He set a new career norm. But I do think that people are underselling him a bit. And, and I think like that, uh, that $16, let's see, he paid $16 for him. The projection on him is $21. Uh, that $21 projection, I believe, is based on his depth charts projection. And his depth charts projection is a 347 WOBA. 347 WOBA would be, like, if I look at, like, his last, let's call it, four years. And so this includes the down 2020. It includes the bad first half of 2021. He has a 351 WOBA over the last four years. That goes back to when he really broke out in 2018. I'm not sure that that 347 projection from depth charts isn't selling him short. Because if if you if you believe that what he did over the last four years is representative, he'll be slightly better than that. If you believe that what happened in 2020 in the beginning of 2021 was a little bit of a fluky down period for him, which I kind of think it was, then that 351 is selling him short. And so I think there's a $25 bat, maybe even a $30 bat in here somewhere. I wouldn't want to pay $25 or $30, but it's $16 for a guy who I think $21 is a uh, $21 is a fair, not particularly high projection, maybe even on the low side projection. Like that's an awesome value. I, I I'm targeting Solaire in a lot of places. Uh, I picked him up in a league, my, my CBS keeper league, uh, which is a little bit of a different setup, but I picked him up last year. He got dropped by, he might've even gotten dropped by me at one point, but I picked him up for, for $3. And so he's going to cost me $5 this year. And I am ecstatic to be penciling him into my lineup. If, if your league is, is not like, if people aren't willing to pay for Solaire and you can get him in the, the mid to upper teens, or even at 20, $22, I think you could get away with a great, great outfield value in auto new leagues. Yeah, so I think I think part of the reason why he's been going cheap, not only in auctions, but also in drafts, has to do with the fact that he hasn't signed yet, right? And I think we saw that with a lot of players. Um, you said you didn't like the price on Rodon, and I'm kind of with you there, but it looks like all the other names that haven't signed, it seems like they were going a little bit late. I think Solaire kind of fits that mold. Schwarber definitely does as well. And I do wonder... It's like this amazing fantasy pie in the sky idea of like, you've heard the Rockies interested in Kyle Schwarber. You've heard the Rockies interested in Michael Conforto. I don't know how much to buy into it, but Jorge Soler playing in Coors Field would be worth purchasing MLB TV 
on itself. That would be enough for me. You saw the home run he hit in the playoffs. Everybody's watched the replay a thousand times over. That would be incredible. Yeah, um, I, I'm a. I, I don't even. I don't even want to like think about that. <laughs> just like, but like looking at just looking real quick at at park factors on. So I'm looking at the baseball savant park factors for right-handed hitters, right? So Soler is a righty. Uh, Kauffman Stadium has a park factor for home runs of 74. So he has been a very, very good source of power for a few years in a park that is literally the worst in baseball for right-handed power. It is the lowest park factor for right-handed power. Truist, where he played the second half of last year and was so much better, has a 100, or no, sorry, a 96 park factor for home runs for righties. It is the 17th highest. So if you look at places he could end up, right? And, and it's, you know, who knows who's going to sign him. Coors has the fourth highest park factor for righties. Um, you know, the Brewers have been rumored to be looking at DH options. He can make a ton of sense for them. They have the sixth highest park factor. You know, a team like the Nationals, the Astros, the Blue Jays, like these are all top 10 park factors for right-handed power. And he could end up at one of those places. Now, there are places he could end up that are not as good, quite clearly. Um, but I think, I don't know, I think it's pretty unlikely he ends up somewhere meaningfully worse than what he's had. Certainly what he had in Kaufman. He's not going to end up anywhere worse than that. There's nowhere worse he could end up, and he's not going back to Kaufman. Um, but I, I don't know that there's a lot of places he can end up that are even that much worse than Atlanta. Like, you look at the teams below Atlanta, Cleveland is almost tied with them in terms of park factor, but I don't think he's going there. I have not heard Solaire to the Red Sox. No, I mean, it doesn't really make sense to me. I don't think the Twins are necessarily in play. The Rays are probably not going to pay for him. The Marlins are probably not going to go for him. The Tigers could, but they've got a bunch of young outfielders they should be giving time to. Um, you know, maybe the Cardinals, not the Pirates, not the A's, not the Diamondbacks, probably not the Giants, because I think the Giants are just sort of overloaded with with platoon bats already. Like, I think he's going to end up in a better place. Like again, another potential place could be Philly, where if they miss out, they're going pretty hard for Bryant. They're going pretty hard for some of these outfielders. If they miss out, he could be an option. And that's just another great place where he could end up. And a guy I kind of view similarly is somebody you brought up earlier in Luke Voigt. Um, now, I think $10 is obviously kind of banking on that he's going to have a starting job. I think if we knew he was going to have the starting job for the Yankees, though, then he'd be going for a lot more. And I think he's just going a little late in drafts where if the Yankees do bring in somebody to play first base instead of Voight, I think that is going to coincide with Voight leaving. And nobody wants to see him leave the confines of Yankee Stadium, but if it meant that he still had a starting job, then I think he's still going to produce. I mean, there's no question the guy strikes out a ton, but he's still been able to put forward a 261 batting average with the Yankees over the last three years, and he's had an 850 OPS. So to see that going so late just or so cheap and so late in drafts and auctions with the idea that the Yankees are looking at first baseman. I don't know if they don't get Freeman, which it looks like the Dodgers and the Braves are leading the pack and the Braves want Anthony Volpe for Matt Olson, which the Yankees don't want to give up. Then I think their next best option is to start Luke Voigt. And so now he's back in Yankee stadium and $10 is going to seem like a bargain. Yeah. I think one of the notes on, on Voigt. So Voigt is the, the rare right-handed Yankees power hitter. Um, and Yankee Stadium is, it is it is not a bad power park for anybody. 
Like let's right. let's not <laughs> let's not go overboard. The park factor for home runs on uh for right-handed home run, the right-handed hitters at Yankee Stadium is 101. It's the 12th highest in baseball. So it is it is a decent but not a great power park for a right-handed bat. And so if Voigt does get moved, and by the way, the overall park factor for right-handed bats at Yankee Stadium is below 100. It's 98. So I'm, I'm one of the things that's interesting with Voight is let's say the Yankees do something like there, there is a uh, there's somebody who I follow for, you know, talk a lot of Cleveland baseball with who has been commenting about like he doesn't think the Guardians will pay up for Matt Olson, but was suggesting that there could be a three way deal where Olson ends up in New York and Voight ends up in Cleveland, which Voight seems more in Cleveland's range. Yankee Stadium's overall park factor for right handed hitters is worse than Cleveland's. And so one, of, and that's not the only one, right? Like they're, they're just, it's not a great park for righties. And so one of the things I'm watching with Voight is if he does get moved, I think you're going to see this immediate, like, oh good, he has playing time, but like he left Yankee stadium, he left that lineup, his value is you know plummeting. And I don't think it's true. I don't think leaving Yankee stadium is going to hurt him. It would hurt a lefty way, way more than it hurts a righty. And so I, I would like... If he does get moved, there may be an opportunity to 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 buy a little bit low on a guy who everyone's like, oh, outside of Yankee Stadium, what's he going to do? Yankee Stadium hasn't been helping him that much. Yeah, I think a, a bigger part of it is not the stadium. It is the lineup, which you mentioned, because when we're talking about a player who just absolutely murders fastballs, like why would you ever throw Luke Voigt a fastball? I don't know. Well, you kind of have to if there's men on base because the Yankees lineup is stacked and you look at who's on deck and it's somebody like Giancarlo Stanton. And so because of that, I think he's taken advantage of the fact that he's been able to see fastballs due to the lineup. If you take him out of that lineup and put him in one that's not so great, maybe you know a park that is significantly better for right-handed power bats kind of evens that off. But I think he would struggle if he's not seeing as many fastballs. But we wouldn't know that until we actually saw the lineup that he ends up in. There is one more team that we wanted to chat about before we get into who we thought were bargains and who we thought were maybe a little bit too expensive. And that was the Fighting Chihuahuas, which as the owner companion of a Chihuahua, that name concerns me a little bit. But um, you kind of like their top-heavy offense, it looks like, Chad. The rotation is definitely loaded with guys that you love, and I see that in the notes. He also mentioned something about Miguel Sano and, and bring up his second half stats that I did not know about. Are we still holding out hope for Miguel Sano, Chad? And, and tell us a little bit about the fighting Chihuahuas. Yeah. So the, the reason I mentioned Sano is because when I talked about their top heavy offense, like if you look at their most expensive buys, like Fernando Tatis Jr. at shortstop, uh, everybody's going to be happy with that. Jordan Alvarez, George Springer, Jonathan India, Jared Walsh, Trevor Story, like. You go through there, those are all their $20 plus bats. And like, that is a, like, that is a stacked middle infield with Tatis, India, and Story. It is a real nice start to an outfield with Alvarez, Springer, and Walsh. But then you look at some of their other positions and it's like, okay, you got Yon Mancata at third base. That's, that's a little, that's a little risky for me. You got Patrick Wisdom as another option at third base. At first base, like they're only true first baseman. Walsh could play there, but I think they're going to use Walsh in the outfield. Wisdom could play there, but I think they're going to need wisdom in the outfield and maybe even at third base. Their only true first baseman is Sano. Um, at catcher, like I, I'm, I think everybody is high on Tyler Stevenson. I'm also high on Danny Jansen, but like that is a risky catcher tandem. Like 
they they took some risks at the bottom end of their offense. It's a little bit of a stars and scrubs approach. However, I did call out Snow, and I called out Snow because he was really, really good in the second half last year. Um, he had a 129 WRC plus in the second half last year. He had a 343 OBP, right? You think about it as a guy who like doesn't, you know, strikes out so much. How much can he really get on base? He had a solid on base percentage. He had 15 home runs in 274 plate appearances. So that is a, you know, 35 ish home run pace over a full season. Um, and then like backing that up, he was third in MLB in barrel rate in the second half. He was first in hard hit rate in MLB in the second half. Like that is uh that's a pretty great place to be right off the bat. And, and, you know, you look at the guys who are up there, you can say, Oh, it's just a half season. Fluky things happen. Here are the guys around him for second half barrel rate. The first, the, the highest barrel rate in baseball in the second half was Joey Votto at 21.2%, uh, which as we all remember, Joey Votto said, I'm going to start hitting home runs and then start hitting home runs. And so, yeah, the second highest barrel rate, Fernando Tatis Jr. I already mentioned Snow is third. Bryce Harper, Salvador Perez. Matt Chapman at sixth is sort of an interesting name that comes up there. Tyler O'Neill, Shohei Otani, Jordan Alvarez, Adam Duvall, Joey Gallo. Like Chapman and, and Sano, you could argue, are sort of the odd men out there. Uh, but we always knew Sano had power, right? Like it, it's, not a, it's not a surprise that Miguel Sano hits the ball hard. So the fact that he was able to barrel the ball that often, and keep in mind, this is a, like, and then and then his hard hit rate, a 60.3% hard hit rate in the second half. Aaron Judge was second at 59.2. Then Gala, or then Votto, Jordan Alvarez again, Tatis, Salvador Perez. Like, he's in some great company there. Um, and, and when you look at his, his overall numbers, it's not just the power, right? Because, like I said, we, we've known the power is there. He brought his K rate down a bit. Now, it was still 32.5% in the second half. It is still a high K rate. He is not going to stop striking out. But versus the 36.4% he had in the first in the first half, that's a pretty nice gain. And his walk rate went from 10.1% in the first half to 12% in the second half. And that combination is a big difference, right? That is, you know, 4% fewer plate appearances that end in automatic outs and 2% more that end up with him on base. Um. Getting that 343 OBP did require a 331 BAPIP. He is probably not going to repeat a 331 BAPIP. Uh, and so, you know, when I look at Sano, I think people have, I think people are writing him off completely. And I can understand why people are writing him off completely, given his struggles since the start of 2020. But this is a guy who, like in 2019, in just 439 plate appearances, he hit 34 home runs with a 346 on base percentage, a, a, an acceptable 247 batting average, we'll call it. Um, and that was with a 319 BAPIP. Like, it wasn't something crazy. And that was also with a 36.2% strikeout rate. Like, he can, like, he can maintain a high strikeout rate and be okay. Um, if you look at his overall line from 2021, that 34.4% strikeout rate is a career low for him. So he is trending the right direction with that. Now, again, he is not he's not going to suddenly put up a 25% strikeout rate or something this year. But I do think that he could I, I think people are underselling the possibility that he does something like put up a 40 home run, 335 on base percentage type season. And so in OBP leagues, like in batting average, I think, you know, 
240 might be the batting average. And so that's going to, that's going to hurt quite a bit, but in OBP leagues, or if you're looking at a draft where you can take them late as cheap power, like I took him in my NFBC, my, my TGFBI draft. Um, he is, you know, not the only guy I have as an option for my util spot. Um, I've got some other guys I'm high on and Trevor Larnock and Brandon Marsh and JD Davis. And one of them might, might supplant him. But like, I think as a cheap power source, I, I love it. I, I think that he is, uh, he is a guy you can probably, if he, if he's healthy and plays a full season, which, you know, we have to see if that happens, you can pencil him in for 30 home runs easy. And, and I don't think 40 is that crazy a projection. If he plays, if he get actually let's, let's go out here. I'm going to, I'll make a bold prediction. If he gets 600 plate appearances, he hits 40 home runs. So maybe that's not bold enough. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I just think it's it, it's not going to happen. I don't I don't see him getting 600 plate appearances because I think when you look at a guy like Miguel Sano in it. So in an OBP league, which is your point, I agree. I think he's actually sneaky value in five by five. I have no interest. And I'm concerned that with Jose Miranda, with Larnack, with Kirilov now healthy, with even, you know, somebody like Royce Lewis, who is going to need a spot. Miguel Sano's has fantasy upside. He's not a good baseball player. I mean, he's just not like if if you're striking out and, and you mentioned it, right? Like in the second half, the K rate was better. It was 32 and a half percent, but it's still horrible. And it's assuming that even that 32 and a half percent, which is setting the bar really low, that's assuming that sticks where the track record would suggest it doesn't. So I totally see the upside in OBP. And if I can get him this cheap, I, I'm with it. I definitely don't want him as my only option at first base, and I'm not holding my breath that he is going to stick long-term with them. He's going to need to show something really soon because he's 28. They're going to have to make a decision with him, and I, there are names coming up for the Twins. That is a team on the rise, and if he continues to put forward you know, a 33 34 36% strikeout rate, at some point that just cannot continue to stick in the lineup. Yeah, I think the the thing about the lineup there is, while it is a team on the rise, like Lewis and Miranda are really the only ones pushing for time that aren't already there, right? The other guys have sort of arrived in Larnock and Kirilov. And like, yes, like if I look at their, if I look at roster resource right now, they have him playing first base and hitting seventh. They have Kirilov at DH hitting eighth, uh, Larnock playing left field hitting ninth. And then the bench, like, Miranda is really the only guy in the bench. Like, I'm not worried about Brent Rooker stealing his time. I'm not worried about Nick Gordon stealing his time. Ryan Jeffers is a fine backup catcher. I don't, I don't know. I don't see anyone stealing time from him. I do think that he has to worry about Miranda, but there's a lot of ways Miranda can get into the lineup without Sano losing it, right? One is Byron Buxton might get hurt. Like, I don't, I don't know if people are aware of this, but he's had some injury issues in the past. Uh, Josh Donaldson has the calves of a 97 year old man and could get hurt. Right. Like we, we haven't yet seen, I, I am a fan of Kirilov. I'm a fan of Larnock. We haven't seen either of those guys produce at the level we hope to see them produce at. There are a bunch of paths for something to open up. And, and because Kirilov is listed as the DH and because he can play first base, because he can play in the outfield, there are a lot of paths. Like if, if Donaldson gets hurt, that becomes Miranda's spot because I don't think they're going to put Sano back at third base. I hope they don't put Sano back at third base. Um, if if Buxton gets hurt, 
I don't think it's a given that like like I think there's ways that you could get Miranda in the lineup replacing Buxton, right? Not by putting him in center field, obviously, but by letting Kepler play center field. By like, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna sacrifice some defense, but they don't have really much better options anyways. Um, and opening up your DH spot by putting Carroll off in the field. So like, I I don't know. I look at this team and yes, I agree. Sano is from a performance perspective at risk of losing time. I just don't know that I think it, I don't know that he gets pushed out um, unless he's really bad. And if he's really bad, then so be it. Well, the other thing too is injury, right? I mean, last year, yeah. the most games, that was the most games he's ever played. And it was 135. So and to be fair in 2020, it was a 60 game season. He played 53. So prorated out, obviously that would have been his, his most productive season but I mean it's a guy what do you have Tommy John and he's had a, a he had a heel injury I think that lasted for a really long time so not holding my breath on Sano definitely concerned if he's my only first base option but particularly in this format I definitely see the upside so Chad let's talk about to end the show our favorite value um you got two names listed here I'm gonna make you choose between the two but I'm going to go first because I, 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 I've talked enough about this guy, so I feel like it can be kind of quick. In this format, the categories being runs, home run. This is for offense, obviously. Runs, home runs, slugging percentage, on-base percentage. Aaron Judge has a chance to be like one of the best, the absolute best in every single one of those categories, and even runs because the Yankees love to bat him second. He was caught for just $39, and I... <laughs> I get the injury thing. I get it. I do. But Aaron Judge just feels like a slam dunk there. So $39 Aaron Judge, to me, that felt like the best bargain. Where were you at with your your two guys here? And any thoughts on Judge? So on Judge, I mean, I think the one thing that's sort of weird is, like, he went for that price, and I got Giancarlo Stanton for $28. And I feel like every league I've ever been in, there's this, like, Yankee premium, right? They get talked about the most. They're in the media capitals. They get covered a lot. They're always on, you know, Sunday Night Baseball. Or now we're going to have, like, Tuesday afternoon baseball on Peacock and Friday night baseball on Apple TV or whatever's going on. So like they're going to be, they're, they're always out there. And yet it felt like they went cheap. So I don't know what's up with that, but I, I'm glad I benefited from it. Uh, but the guys I noted, so I went sort of a different direction and, and looked down at the bottom at guys who I just think were like, wow, I really love the price on this guy. I'm surprised he went that cheap. And you told me I'm gonna have to pick between the two. And so the two guys I mentioned were a, uh, a $4 Eddie Rosario and a $6 Alex Cobb. Uh, and I'll talk about Cobb because I think he's, I think he's the more interesting one. So Cobb, the, the risk with Cobb, of course, is, is innings, right? I mean, he, he went for 179 innings in 2017, and 152 in 2018, and then has gone for 12.1, 52.1 and 93.1. It's trending up. So I guess that's good. Um, but he, he, you know, you can't count him for a lot of innings. His 3.76 ERA last year was solid, but he had a 2.92 FIP and a 3.38 XFIP. Uh, his strikeout rate last year, 24.9%, was a career high. His 8.4% walkout rate, wa- walkout? That's not the right word. Walk rate, uh, you get strikeouts and walkouts. That's, that's my new, <laughs> that's how I'm going to talk about him now. Uh, his 8.4% walk rate was up. Um. But you can make that trade-off when your strikeouts go up that much, right? His strikeout minus walk rate was the highest of his career at 16.5%. 
he is also now so like there's a lot to like there's a lot of sort of underlying stuff from last year that looks real good his velocity was up at 93.1 after being at 92.9 before that and re- rarely over 92 most of the rest of his career like even at his at his peak with Tampa he was at 91 so like that's a real velocity gain um his ground ball rate the last couple of years has been back up where it was at his peak like there's a lot to like there on top of that he has spent the last 4 seasons with Baltimore, 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 and Los Angeles, the Angels, <laughs> the, the bad Los Angeles team. Pick for two worst teams to spend time with as a pitcher. Right. Now, he just got signed by the Giants. Right. Right. And so, like, you look at what the Giants have done with guys like Disclafini, with Alex Wood. Like, Cobb fits that model so well of, like, oh, here's a guy who's been underperforming his peripherals and just needs to, like, unlock something. Like, I love, I love this. I love Cobb. I think he's going to have a really good season. I think if he repeats what he did last year in like 140 innings instead of 93 innings, which I think he's been building up to, he's going to be excellent. And I don't, I wouldn't put it past the Giants to have signed him because they see something they think they can tweak that gets his ERA closer to his FIP. Now, 2.92 FIP, I'm not going to sit here and predict, predict he has a sub three ERA. Sub 3.5? I, I think that's realistic for him. Um, and so I am, I'm super intrigued by, by Cobb this year. Uh, and I really liked that by, um, I should be giving credit to whoever. I hope that wasn't me. <laughs> I, oh, it's the fighting Chihuahuas. We talked about how in the fighting Chihuahuas, they had all these pictures. I love like they paid up for Zach Wheeler and Charlie Morton, Trevor Rogers were all guys. I like, I'm a fan of Ranger Suarez, but like Cobb, Waskar, you know, uh, Elias Hernandez, like they've got a bunch of guys down near the, their cheaper pitching that I'm, that I'm a big fan of. And, and Cobb was the one that stood out to me as like, this could be really nice. He also, the other, the other note on Cobb for this format is last year, he had a 0.48 home run per nine at his peak with Tampa. His home run per nine was 0. 0.51, 0. 0.73, 0. 0.82, 0. 0.60. Uh, he could he could be a real nice boost to home run per nine. And so in this format in particular, I think it's, I, I just I really like that buy. So that's that's the guy I'll talk about for best for best value. Good call. Alex Cobb, six dollars. It's a bargain. You brought up your Giancarlo Stanton one. And honestly, if I had to pick a second place for mine, I think I would have given it to Stanton in a quick shout out because I did pick Aaron Judge. Uh that was Eno's ferocious cats. That, that got Aaron Judge there for $39. And to wrap up our breakdown of this auction, let's talk about the values, Chad, that we liked the least. I'm going to be really quick. Jonathan India, I'm glad the shift is gone because he's a serious pull hitter. This was brought up uh, a few shows ago, something that kind of had me concerned, and the Reds are selling, so I don't know how much, you know, the lineup around him is not going to be as great. I still like him. I just thought $23 more than Albies and Altuve was a lot. Given the format, it definitely makes sense, but just felt like a lot. Where are you at with the, I, I think I know who you're going to choose, but with the most overpaid for a player. So first of all, on, on India, like I like India, but I am surprised he went for more than Albies and Altuve. There's a couple others like surplus calculator would say that Bueller was the most overpaid. And I tend to agree with the projections as a whole that Bueller's overvalued right now. That's who I thought um, you were going to go with. <laughs> I, yeah. I, what I'm going to go with, and it's a little bit of a, a cop out, but I'm going to just go with relief pitchers. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. 
Um, four by four. Remember that the categories for four by four are strikeouts, ERA, WHIP, and home run per nine. Um, relievers obviously post great rates. The best relievers post great rates. They can get you a lot of strikeouts per inning. So there, there, there's value there. However, I think there are so many sort of middle relievers who come in and pitch brilliantly in the seventh inning that you can get cheap that I just don't like, I don't mind spending three to $5 on a reliever, but looking across this league, there's a $19 Josh Hader, a $16 Liam Hendricks, uh, a $13 Edwin Diaz, a $12 Emmanuel Classe, uh, $10 Aldis Chapman, $10 Rizal Iglesias, $9 Ryan Presley. I think there was a saves or maybe even a saves plus holds premium paid in this league that shouldn't have been paid. And so across the board, even in cases where the projections say those guys are worth it, I just don't think there's enough separating them from like Kendall Graveman that you got for $2. Like, yeah, he's not going to get very many saves and holds in that bullpen, but who cares? Yeah, literally uh, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, and so, and, and like a guy like, Art Warren that Chris B got or Pete Fairbanks that Chris B got like, yeah, those are bullpens that are going to be sort of a mess, but like, I really like those pitchers. And so I would much rather have them for the $3 that he paid than spend 19 on hater. And so for me, the most overpaid guys in this draft in general, were just, I think, I think we went a little, I think we went a little silly with relievers. Um, and if you look at my roster in this league, like I, I just didn't pay for relief pitching. Like I have a, my, I have zero relief pitchers that I paid a second dollar for my, my relievers are Pierce Johnson for a dollar, Julian Merriweather for a dollar, Anthony goes for a dollar, Drew Pomerantz for a dollar and Tim Mesa for a dollar. How confident am I that those guys are going to be good? Meh. It makes, it's a varied result. I, I'm not sure they might all be terrible, but then I'll churn through them and I'll find someone who is good. Cause there will be guys who, who come up and are solid. And I just, to me, those were all the like. I I will in a five by no, sorry in a four by four league. It's not that I will never pay for relievers. I I will, I will go to three even five dollars in some cases for a reliever that I think really stands out. But I I'm never going to like six seven eight, let alone sixteen seventeen eighteen for a reliever in this format. Yeah, I, I so I think based on the conversations that we've had over the last year plus chat, I think, you know, that I probably feel the same way. I was the guy who splurged on the $13 Edwin Diaz. My mindset was, I knew I was going to go cheap on starting pitcher. So I wanted to get five relievers who I thought when combined could basically be an ACE. And I think you kind of have to pay up to get the guys who are more likely to do that. And especially closers who, you know, if they're the closer, they're, they'll get the volume, you know, the, the 40 to 60 innings that you're looking for, where some of these other guys might be a little bit of shots in the dark. I got, I ended up with Corey Knievel, Kendall Graveman, Christian Javier, who might turn into a starter, depending on what happens to Lance McCullers, Edwin Diaz and Alex Vessian. In total, I think I paid up maybe a little bit more than I'd be comfortable with, but I think those five combined could, like, like you said, post some awesome rates. The question is, could I have gone cheaper? But it is interesting. Because even though I'm in agreement with you, and that's obviously how you feel, the surplus calculator loved a team that spent up on, I think, all three of, I want to say it was, I'm trying to find the team right now, Hendricks, Klasa, and Araldus Chapman, I believe it was. I think it might have been 
the Chihuahuas. I'm looking now. No, it wasn't them. It doesn't matter what team it was, but it was one of those top three teams we mentioned, and they had all three of those closers. They paid like $45 for their bullpen. That stood out to me, but the system loved them. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, the, the system. So the, the projections will be higher on relievers because those cheaper relievers all get projected for like middling stats, right? Which, which I think it makes sense. I mean, you, you don't, uh, it's hard to project a like lower tier reliever to be great because there's just not, it, it's, it's a small sample size over the course of a season. You don't have a lot of data on, on over the years. And so their projection system is going to regress to the mean. And so other than the, so those elite relievers who it does believe in, right? The guys like Hendricks or Classe or Chapman or Diaz or Hayter, like those guys, the projection systems will project as great. And therefore it, it values them very, very highly. I basically just don't agree with the, the, I guess the curve that, the projection systems spit out for relievers. I think there are more good relievers than the projection systems believe there are. And I think the end of season stats tend to pan that out. Um, the, the challenge is you have to be willing to churn through your relievers to find them uh, because you're going to guess wrong a lot. Right. And whereas like, you're not going to guess wrong on Liam Hendricks. He's going to be one of the best relievers. I, I just I would rather spend that money somewhere else and churn through relievers over the course of a season. Um, it's a riskier move, but I think it it allows me more flexibility elsewhere in my roster. That makes total sense. Well, everybody, that was definitely a huge breakdown of the uh, new listener auction. Thank you again to those who participated. Follow Chad at at Chad Young. Follow me at at Pete B Baseball. Follow the show at at Keep or Cut. Make sure you leave us ratings, reviews, all that good stuff. If you've made it this far, that means you've tolerated me hosting with the terrible cold. Um, I'm sorry I sound like crap, but uh, hopefully next time I sound a lot better. Thank you, folks, and we will catch you next week. Bye.